Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest of radio stations. I am James Butler. The last few years have seen an explosion on the institutional left in the UK and the US between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, and the exciting wave of projects and organisations which have blossomed in their wake have been truly uh, astonishing. And one of the most exciting publications, I think, to spring up in the US over the last few years has been Jacobin magazine, which is, I think, the dominant journal of the American left. Now, its founder and editor, Bhaskar Sankara, has released a book, The Socialist Manifesto, which distills many of the questions facing this new, new left as it tries to move to change society. Bhaskar joined me in the Navarra Media studio yesterday to discuss his vision of socialism past and future. It it, it wasn't the book I was expecting in some ways, right? So it's effectively... Um, a grappling with socialist history of, of the kind that, you know, I think is essential for the contemporary left. It's the kind of, like, not examining history to show that your factional side won, or that it was right, but actually trying to figure out why what happened happened and why decisions were made uh, and how things ended up the way that they did. And, you know, Trotsky talks about, like, the merciless laboratory of history, and I think there's certainly something of that uh, in the book. And the historical studies are uh, kind of bookended by these, uh, by like one by like a really charming exercise mm. in kind of imagining what transition would be like from the perspective of an American worker, and then at the end, I guess what you would call the, the manifesto proper, which I think mm. emerges from the, the historical study. And let's talk about the historical stuff first. Mm. So some of the historical moments you choose to think about would be obvious for those on the left, you know, so the experience of the Bolsheviks, for instance. You know, others perhaps less so. Were there specific political issues you were trying to think through that led to their selection? Well, what I was trying to do was avoid a no true Scotsman type, um, oh, you know, that's not socialism, because if that's bad, then socialism's good. So therefore, everything that's bad is not socialism, but everything that only what I think is socialism is socialism. And I think that's the mentality of a lot of leftists. And it reminds me of conversations I sometimes have with libertarians in the United States, where you could be talking with someone about the injustices of capitalism. You could be saying, look, there's medical debt, there's all this pressure and anxiety, there's all this alienation, and they'll be agreeing with you, yes, yes, yes. And they'll say, well, why are you such a fervent supporter of capitalism? And say, oh, that's not capitalism, that's crony capitalism. And I think on the left, we do something like that too. So what I wanted to do was take a look at the divergent parts of this once unified workers' movement. So what went wrong with the Bolshevik experiment, what went right and wrong with uh, various efforts to... Uh, national liberation movements, and particularly the Chinese Revolution, and also what went right and what went wrong with the efforts of uh, Sweden, Swedish social democracy and social democracy more generally. So I think we have to see them as all part of a common tradition and divergent parts of it. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to revive some sort of left for the 21st century, we have to take bits and pieces from all these different trajectories. We need a left, in other words, that can learn from 1976 Sweden just as much as 1917 Russia. Because I would argue, hopefully not too controversially, you know, 1976 Sweden probably more closely resembles a lot of the conditions in which we'll be operating organizing in than Tsarist Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's true. And I think one of the things that's, that I guess is, is, is quite striking um, about about uh, you know the way in which you approach these things is to is to emphasize the degree to which all of these were um, outgrowths of what was initially a relatively cohesive workers movement right so you have the workers movement that emerges through the course of the nineteenth century you have the emergence of social democracy and social democracy at this point uh, and I'm thinking early twentieth century and in particular your study of German social democracy it's not just what we would think of as social democrats today right it it has uh, this kind of like quite profound Marxist grounding, um, and I think I think in some ways, like the the study of German social democracy, there is you know I mean I'm I'm a big you know I think I think the German experience was important and under theorized and under reflected on I think by by the anglophone left, um, and I I guess my question in some ways or, 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 or what 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 I I'm I was thinking about when reading your chapter is why you took to German social democracy as, 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 as a way of thinking through what seems to me to be a question about the party, right? So there are people mm-hmm. who emerge from your account 
actually quite sympathetically where they wouldn't in some mm-hmm. in some accounts of so Kautsky or Bernstein or people like that. Um, so, so what they were attempting to do, what is useful about thinking about German social democracy in particular? So what's the lesson you're trying to draw from it? Well, you can't read history backwards. You can't say there was this vote for war credits that was supported by the majority of uh, German social democrats, or at least their parliamentary fraction uh, in 1914. Uh, therefore, it was always corrupt and always wedded to the nation state. So we have to read history the right in the right direction, which is that the German working class came to the realization during the time of LaSalle in the mid-19th century that it had distinct interests, interests distinct from liberalism, and that it needed to organize um, in the interests of its class. And this broad movement needed to cohere together, so they formed a party. And this party had local branches and lots of vibrant activity. It had, um, it was tied to trade unions, but there was a need for a bureaucracy. There was a need for a better coordination of this action, particularly because the German Social Democrats uh, fell under the ire of the state many times. They were even underground for over for over ten years. So at the same time. German workers are organizing in trade unions, and these trade unions had both economic and political purposes. But when the German Social Democrats, the kind of ideological political part of their coalition, was saying, we need to have one-day strikes every May Day. This is part of our tradition. We don't work on May Day. And unions started to say, well, we need to save our strike funds for when we actually need to go on strike for wages and economic issues. Um, and maybe we don't want to invest our resources into political gambits like the mass strike because we actually gain strength and we, we win concessions when capitalism is stable. And we need the combination of the ability to withhold our labor to threaten capital, but we also need uh, ultimately profitable firms while we're within capitalism. So even though we, in the abstract we believe in socialism, you know, we're not going to commit ourselves to all these radical tactics. And then you have people like um, Ebert, uh, the social democratic leader who became general secretary and took over the party offices and just rationalized a lot of the bureaucracy. And he was flooding all these local, um, you know, volunteer leaders of local branches and people with questionnaires and all this other bureaucratic information. And he helped push a professionalization of the party, which made it more effective in certain ways, but also uh, trampled upon a lot of party democracy. So if you are thinking about all these tensions, tensions between the trade union bureaucracy and political radicals, tensions between the need for bureaucracy and centralization to be effective, but also the need for democracy and grassroots rank and file engagement, um, battles within the trade union movement between rank and file workers and, and, and bureaucrats and all the different tensions and pressures that they're under, they're all acting as rational actors, yet they are coming at loggerheads and the party is moving in a more conservative direction or at least being pushed in this direction. So it sounds very familiar, I think, if you put it that way. (laughs) And I think we haven't resolved all the dilemmas from from that period. But it was a time when you could speak of social movements, so called, you could speak of trade unions, we could speak of a political movement for socialism. So socialist is one and the same. Mm-hmm. Whereas today in our common speech, we talk about the left or socialist, like it's kind of a disconnected thing from working class, you know, ferment and trade unions. And we think of that the trade union movement as different than social movements. Whereas if you have a real movement, they're all one and the same. So you have not just a workers party and a bunch of socialists, but you have a, um, well, perhaps given the context of this country, I should stop my <laughs> sentence, but, you know, a small S, small W, small P, you know, Socialist Workers Party, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's true. Um, I mean, I, like the, 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 I guess the question here, or, or the thing that's striking in, in, in this account, is, you know, one, the, the sense, and I think the sense... Or, or it's a, a preoccupation that comes out, I think, throughout your historical chapters that, you know, one, history doesn't necessarily go forward in any clear kind of teleological, progressive, uh, you know, uh, rather vulgar way, right? Like, actually, if you think in, in terms of the height, the commanding height of German so- social democracy compared to what we have today, there, there is like, there's something quite seriously enviable about that problem, um, about the problems that they were confronted with, right? Like, it would be nice to have those problems to some, to, you know, to some degree. Um, but, but what was, and in that sense, I mean, especially intellectually, right? So you have here, like, a movement that is more or less founded, 
uh, or, or has as its kind of common patrimony uh, a shared body of Marxist, kind of explicitly Marxist knowledge. So kind of the, the Grundstimmung, the ground tone of the whole thing. Uh, that's no longer the case, right? Like So, so um, I look at, you know, your account of people like Kautsky and Bernstein, all of, both of whom are kind of trying to think about what it means to be a Marxist in a moment where capital seems to be doing something different to what it was previously. And that feels very, very similar. It, and yet at the same time, it feels as if like they're, they're starting from an almost like further advanced point. Way further advanced than they actually had a social base. So if you think about these great intellectuals of the Second International, if you think about Lenin, uh, Lenin was a lawyer, uh, Luxembourg was not an academic, um, Kotsky was a kind of a writer and in- intellectual. Um, like all these people came from from variant roots, but none of them were in academia. Today, when we think about left wing intellectuals, we think about people in academia disconnected from parties and discipline or whatever else. And if they were disciplined by a party, we would just think it was really weird. So they also had a group of workers who went to their own Marxist study groups who uh, subscribed to publications, who forged kind of a culture around their identity as workers. And this persisted into Europe into the 1970s in some places. So in Italy, for example, you could be a radical in the 1970s, some sort of far left revolutionary socialist, and you could go into a working class district. You knew you were in working class district. Um, you know, all the people there would be reading the same newspaper. There would be a similar style, manner, dress, whatever. There's a working class identity in a subjective sense. But also objectively, these people were employed in many of the similar industries. And they uh, were all voting for, in the Italian instance, either the Italian Socialist Party or the Italian Communist Party. So if you're a far left revolutionary socialist, you would say, all right, all these people, they're workers, they know they're workers. Most of them in the majority are voting for parties committed to some sort of reformist route to socialism. I need to convince them that they need to pursue a more revolutionary route to socialism and they should be more active and engaged. And we failed at that task, but it seems so easy. Um, Whereas now, often we have to... um, Well, there's a William Morris quote that went like, um, workers think they are class... Uh, we ought to convince them that they ought to be a society or something like that. And now it's like we have to convince people of the class part, too, mm-hmm. in many in many areas. And um, I think that's really been lost. So right now, being a leftist has become too much about kind of culture, consumer preferences, your affect or whatever else, and not about your position in the economy and your and where you go from there. So we have to rebuild both the the subjective d- dimension of class because I think the objective thing is still is still there and that takes organizing. I mean, like the, the, I mean, it's it's funny you mentioned Italy there because obviously the, the book ends with a quote from um, Lucio Magri's incredible book on, on uh, the history of Italian communism, the experience of Italian communism. And there is something so striking in that book about when he talks about you know like uh, you know the police were afraid of Italian communists not just because of their you know, organizational capacity but because they had this incredible thick. Uh, you know, social depth to them that if you had no money in your pocket, you could go to the Casa del Popolo and you could, you know, you would dance and have a drink and you'd, you know, feel like you were part of a movement. That that I think is is certainly absent these days. I mean, uh, so so you know, I, on the other hand, I think one of the advantages of the book is that you're also kind of pleasingly hard on Stalinism, right? Like I think it's quite. Uh, important, <laughs> uh, I think, especially these days, where the, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there is this tendency to exonerate or deny any connection to the movement. Um, I guess you know one of the things that that sort of struck me when reading that passage uh, and the chapter on China was the way in which you know movements of oppressed people, including those you know under fascist occupation, for instance, in Italy, like, latched on to the image of someone like Stalin. Uh, and the image of the USSR as a kind of promise that another society, another kind of society, was possible. So you get these Italian mm-hmm. partisans saying, ah, Bafone is going to come and liberate us from, from fascism. Um, it, of course, has like nothing to do with actual Stalinism, right? It has like nothing to do with the actual practice. Uh, and actually, very often when you have workers going to, to the USSR, they're like, oh, God, this is, <laughs> this is not quite what I thought it was going to be. Um, but, but there are obviously advantages to having a generation of leftists, and I think it's the generation to which you're talking to, um, I, who, who have grown up after the collapse of the Soviet experiment, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just no longer, you know, the, the world is not cast in those mm-hmm. terms. 
But does the absence of like a real experiment along along those lines, a real kind of like world power level experiment, mm-hmm. like not necessarily even in actually functioning non-capitalist society, but something that is at least predicated mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, actually capitalism isn't the only game in town, or at least doesn't have to be. Is there something missing and what can replace it? Well, I think we should separate Stalinism out of power and Stalinism in power. Because mm. let's say in a place like the United States, uh, the Communist Party were fervent supporters of civil rights. They were on the right side of history of all these different battles, fighting for to create the union movement, all these other things. And they weren't the perpetrators of, of police repression. They were the uh, victims of police repression. Um, now... I guess there's two parts of it. Yes, I think it's actually been bad for the movement to not have a sense of historical destiny, to not have the sense that the future is bright, the future is already here, socialism is the future. That confidence is gone, and that's been a tremendous you know, blow to uh, anti-capitalist movements of all types. Also being able to point to a socialist fifth of the world and say, you know, we're, we're out there somewhere. Uh, I think was connected with that confidence. Now, I guess where there's debate is whether the threat of Stalinism helped build welfare states in Western Europe and elsewhere. On that, I think the evidence is pretty scant. So in other words, class struggle within capitalist countries based on the objective contradiction between workers and, and capital and, and the, the, the fact that they were organizing and fighting and demanding more is what built a welfare state and one concessions. I don't think you actually need an outside power to do that. Um, sometimes there's there is like documentation of elites and heads of states, kind of especially in some some areas with strong. But it's often they're responding to communist parties being strong. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they're responding to the domestic class struggle, not this foreign threat. So it might have played some role, particularly in like Finland. I think you make the case in a few other places, but um, I don't think it was a an overriding uh, role. And I think today there's a tendency to, uh, on various lefts, including the, the British left, to fall into the like almost nostalgia for having a countervailing force to NATO and U.S. hegemony. And, and uh, I could understand that from the geopolitical sense. Like, actually, the Soviet Union had a mixed record abroad, but it had a better record than the United States and, and the first camp. Um but it kind of reduces politics to a form of great power politics where we're going to pick the more benevolent great power. Um, we're going to figure out which one that is, and we're going to do that. Instead of seeing politics as coming from below and being rooted in the agency and action of, of ordinary working people fighting for, for better better lives. So I think, in other words, we should be able to analyze something like uh, Syria even and all these other uh, other things at, from the standpoint that the the concern of of the actors who are who are fighting against both Islamism and against um, the Assad regime, uh, but because not because they're manipulated by outside powers or, or you know be it the U.S. or or Russia, but because they actually just want a better life and they're just like me and you and and they have the same desires for for freedom and autonomy and mm-hmm. security. I, I mean, I think I think that's that's true. I mean, I, I you know I think. The, the the striking thing about actually the the history of something like British communism is 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 how internally focused it is really. I mean, you look at you read something like the Lost World of British Communism, the you know the history of the you know the internal uh, culture of the Communist Party is like actually you know, how determined these people were to build a different society here for themselves. It was it was very much you know it, the idea that it, it it was purely focused on these kind of gestures of international mm-hmm. solidarity, though this was an important part of it. Don't get me wrong; like, mm-hmm. it just seems seems to me uh, you know, incorrect. I mean, you mentioned the party there, and I. I I want to move on to social democracy in a minute, um, but it's just striking to me that there, there is an error, error, as if I'm sort of floating over sort of the historical scene, passing judgment on it. It's a terrible leftist mm. habit, but um, you know, nonetheless, an error that <laughs> seems apparent in the history of German social democracy. It's one that I think Rosa Luxemburg realizes, right? Which is this mistake, and it's a mistake I think that that we can fall into as as socialists, as communists, as leftists, whatever, 
which is the tendency to substitute, you know, the the party or the organizational growth for the movement towards socialism itself. This is the problem that she saw, you know, quite early on, actually, and that she was right about. Do you see that as a problem with contemporary relevance? Yeah, actually, I think that in this era, we are looking at something almost completely opposite, where the leftists and leftist parties don't have a sense of patience. They're immediately, in other words, they're not trying to slowly accrue seats in parliament and increase their, their stature and rootedness in society. They're just trying to win elections quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's like the worst of both worlds. It's this narrow electoralism that Luxembourg is criticizing, but also it's not even uh, building the deep roots in working class society. So in other words, D-Linka, if D-Linka was hovering around 10%, and that meant that 10% of the German working class was organized and fighting for socialism in some way, then that wouldn't be bad, a bad start. That would be like the 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 start of a of a real opposition movement but instead what it is is just 10 percent of people an alliance between like old pensioners in east germany and some like young people in cities that are that are broadly left to social democracy um, are voting for this party and they're just voting every other year for the for the party in some you know uh like by-elections or whatever the equivalent is in germany and um you know just aren't that engaged otherwise uh, so the question, so I think in this era, we need both a non-electoralist strategy, one aimed at at making the left more deeply rooted in working class communities, but we have to pursue that through the means of elections as a primary venue. And I don't think there's a contradiction mm-hmm. there. So if you look at uh, someone like even Bernie Sanders' campaign in the United States, it's a campaign that's rooted around a candidate for an election, but there's tremendous things being done with the, uh, say, the data coming from the Sanders campaign. He's using it to mobilize people to show up on picket lines. He's using it to create a broader network that will hopefully survive after the election. There's a lot of other groups that are latching on to the fact there's a campaign coming and they're deciding to time their strikes to the state primaries because they know there's a bunch of Bernie Kratz that could then do solidarity work and be around. They know Sanders will show up on the picket line. Uh, I think it's a shortcut that we're pursuing because the left is so weak. We need to we need to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's has some sort of awareness that we need to rebuild something that's going to take a longer time. And I think in the UK you have the advantage of actually already having a Labour Party in which there could be a coherent strategy. Um, like Momentum could have launched two three years ago a strategy for slowly and coherently. Um, changing the structure of CLPs, occupying CLPs, making them more um, more of a seat for actually mobilizing, galvanizing activity. But it hasn't really happened. And the only attempts to do it have came from smaller sectarian groups that have their own agenda, which is more propagandizing than, than organizing. It's not necessarily saying that's a bad thing thing in this instance so often it is but <laughs> but it it does mean that that when we're weak and we're small and we're just organizing ones and twos all we're going to do is propagandize mm-hmm. or we're going to do it through the media outlets or whatever else but the combination of this vague like oh social movements you were going to generate some social movements there will be social movements and we're going to vote for someone into office and we're going to have a bunch of great left journalists doing media hits from the other side on BBC and other big venues like this isn't actually left politics the way it used to yeah. used to be yeah. and then one of the missing ingredients is this the actual working class right. and people being able to exercise power where they can. That's why I still am concerned with the traditional workplace, because you still need to be able to go on strike. That's where working people have the most leverage and the most power. I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's also, I think, something here about, like, the, the field of political operation being so heavily mediatized, and it's one of the problems that happens with momentum, right? It's like the, the kind of, you know, one of the... the the things about liberal politics is that it's it's all it's so discursive uh, that in order to intervene in it, you're so heavily kind of drawn um, to to you know to to those kinds of discursive interventions, and it's so rapidly cyclical that it's very hard to to exit from. It. It's been one of the problems for you know in, in left strategy in this country, I think, for the last couple of years. And you know, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. Uh, let's talk social democracy, uh, which in a sense is the question. Uh, in Britain to some extent as well. And it's a recurrent three theme throughout the book, right? Like, so your, your chapter on the history of social democracy in Sweden is in some ways, like I think, the most provocative and probably the most unfamiliar. Um, 
you know, it traced the political development of effectively mm-hmm. advanced social democracy from a polity that had nothing, right? So it didn't have the legacy of craft unions of stuff like that. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I think becomes very clear is that social democracy is always unstable, right? That it's pulled in one direction or another, usually back uh, towards capital by, by kind of disciplinary power. So you have Mitterrand, eventually Sweden kind of goes that way as well. And, you know, into the, you know it's one way of looking at the kind of Tsipras problem. So, so what is the use of social democracy today? Well, I think that we have to look at what social democrats actually accomplished, which is even after social democrats lost the horizon of socialism, they weren't trying to achieve socialism the way me and you would think of socialism, which is worker ownership of the means of production, socializing production, and so on they did achieve a functional socialism, which is they left um, uh, control in the hands of management. They let left capitalists in, in kind of a lot of their positions of power, but they taxed and regulated and through sectoral bargaining and these other, other devices, they were able to create societies in which the core necessities of life were largely decommodified, meaning they were taken out of the market. So things that were previously dependent on your ability to pay, like healthcare, like education, childcare, and so on, were now guaranteed as social rights. So even the social housing program in Sweden, at the time they had a population of 8 million people that built 1 million homes just you know this the scale is just staggering i mean can you imagine a labor government coming to power and building i guess here would be the equivalent of eight to nine million homes you know um you know going yeah. to have to so. yeah um, <laughs> uh, or at least yeah there, there needs to be a program on that on that scale um you know here and and in the united states too but you know so I think we should pay attention to it because the societies they ended up constructing by the 60s and 70s were the most humane and decent societies that have ever been constructed. And because these societies were not the product of culture, they weren't the product of, of white homogeneity, you know, which is one argument of the right on the in the U.S. at least, when they talk about, oh, well, maybe social democracy is fine, but it only worked because everyone was white there. You know, and obviously it's not even a dog whistle. It's like I a mean, bull, the bull Danish horn. social democrats yeah. doing the same thing, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I think that, that we, we need to say that this was the outcome of class struggle and organizing, and it wasn't preordained, and these were victories that were won. But then we also need to think about how were, were these victories largely undone. Actually, not even largely, somewhat undone. The narrative of retrenchment is sometimes overstated. So in other words, the welfare state is maybe two-thirds what it was in some of these countries. It's not completely undone. What has been undone, though, is the political capability of the working class to start demanding more. So Leninists would have argued that the welfare state might have been good in that it helps, you know, workers, it helps their core constituencies, because back then it wasn't just Leninists on the internet. You know, these were actual people who were working class <laughs> themselves, who who saw the benefits of, of reforms. Uh, but they might have argued, all right, so the welfare state, though, it also buys off uh, workers. It also incorporates them with the nation state. It makes them more compliant, more tied to their employers. So it's kind of a double mixed blessing. In fact, the welfare state caused people to demand more. Because winning normally begets more more winning. If you're in a country with, with 20% unemployment, you're going to be a lot less, li- less likely to go on strike than somewhere where there's 1% unemployment. And by the late 1960s, by 67, 68, Swedish workers are going on strike not just over bread and butter issues, but for industrial democracy. And later, there's a demand that came from the left wing of the LO, but later adopted by the, the main trade union federation in, in Sweden, which is called the LO. Um, but also adopted more lukewarmly by the main social democratic party, the SAP in Sweden, that would have created a wage earner fund that would have slowly socialized production of most major, all major uh, Swedish firms. Um, And so, in other words, the old basic agreement, the 1938 agreement that created the bedrock of social democracy, which is, you know, we're going to drop some of our demands for nationalizing the commanding heights of industry. Sweden, I think, peaked at around 11% of the economy being nationalized, whereas in the UK, laborism, which was always a more conservative right-wing version of social democracy that prevailed elsewhere in Europe, uh, nationalized more, but socialized less, if that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but this agreement that said, you know, we're, you're going to have to concede all these rights and demands, but you're going to maintain your, your ownership and we're going to respect your right to manage was actually first 
broken by rank and file grassroots activity from workers themselves. It wasn't broken from the right. And this is really important because especially in the UK and other countries that had welfare states that were under attack by the right, the narrative is often, you know, we just want to go back to our agreement. They broke this agreement. We had this post-war compromise. It was working so well. Then capital got too greedy. It doesn't make sense. Or, and also our leaders betrayed us. Yeah. It really doesn't make yeah. sense. My most controversial argument uh, is that Gordon Brown would have been uh, the most left-wing leader of the Labour Party had he been born in the 19... Uh, or had, had he, like, reigned in the 1940s. <laughs> he would have been to the left of Attlee, for sure. Yeah. Uh, given his background, given what we know about his history and, you know, wh- whatever whatever else, I would trust him more than, than, uh, than uh, Attlee, um, you know, for sure. Uh, but, but the gambit of the right wing of social democracy was that they were responding to a real crisis. The old way couldn't continue. The compromise was being broken sometimes by by striking militant workers and sometimes by the broader economic condition. So you had a, a situation in the 1970s when social democracy was, on, was in crisis, when capital's profitability, is inroads were being made on it, and capital said, all right, so your wage demands are a bit too high, but we're also having to deal with the OPEC shock. We are also having to deal with increased international competition. So we don't know how to solve this problem, but we need to deregulate and we need to smash the unions in order to solve this problem. So the response to the left wing of social democracy was to take away capital's ability to withhold investment, to take away this blackmail and this power that capital had in the economy. And this is what Sweden tried to pursue briefly and then, and then failed. Uh, then the response of the center of social democracy, I guess, was to just close your eyes and pretend like nothing was happening. In response to the right wing of social democracy, people in the UK who later evolved into kind of third way social democracy mm-hmm. was, we are going to let capital restructure. So we're going to deregulate. We're going to smash some of these unions or we're going to at least like create the conditions in which the union movement is weaker. But with this, when capital's profitability is restored and growth is, is expanding again, we are going to tax that growth and we're going to maintain as much of the welfare state as we can mm-hmm. with that growth. So by pure economic terms, third way social democracy worked. That's the reason why there hasn't been as extreme retrenchment as we would have seen. In political terms, they're shattering their own social base. So why would capital rather a labor government that's pro-business when they could have a, a Tory party that's that's you know even more <laughs> pro-business? And why would workers keep voting for uh, a party that will give you death by a thousand cuts when they could just stay at home because they don't want to vote for the party that will give them death by one guillotine blow, and they also don't want to give a party that will just pinprick austerity to them. So, you know, but at least the right wing of social democracy were responding to something real. And it wasn't betrayal. It wasn't that all of a sudden, all across Europe, a bunch of cowards were elected from parties, whereas before there were more honorable people. You know, it was it was this contradiction. So to be a socialist, to say social democracy is not enough, is to say that we believe in these reforms, but we need to go from these reforms to something deeper that challenges the ability of capital to withhold investment. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, some of these reforms will be rolled back and we'll never get to a society in which our normative vision of a just society, so without exploitation that we think is inherent in wage labor, uh, with democratic workplaces, uh, without forms of oppression like racism and sexism that pervade um, class societies today. You know, we, we need to go beyond that to socialism, but there's also that practical necessity of of um, wanting to maintain the rights we already already have and, yeah. and yeah. seeing a way, way in which the rights we have are antithetical to the interests of, of, of capital. They would rather us not even have the right to vote if they, they had their, their way. So, I mean, in your vision then, like there, there's, there's still, so you have these, these you know, one of the reasons, so for instance, that Sweden is in your book, right, is that it has that history of, of the kind of minor influenced, uh, you know, thinking about the ways in which to actually use reforms within capitalism to move forward to, to that future state. But for you, there, there's still um, a ruptural moment. There's still a moment at which there actually has to be a kind of decisive break? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that um, at least in the first countries that transition to socialism, there will be a ruptural moment, but the key is to have a democratic mandate mm-hmm. through parliament. Uh, then if the right breaks the democratic mandate, it's on the right, and then maybe you'll have a situation that the, you know, the old Leninists would call a situation of dual power, mm-hmm. in which power rests in both the streets, in the form of 
um, kind of worker strike committees and other other community based organizations, but also but you know the elite is trying to exercise power in other ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the key is we win our parliamentary mandate. We try to legislate about socialism, and if the break of parliamentary norms happens, it should happen from the from the right. Mm-hmm. If that mm-hmm. that makes sense. And um, yeah, I think I think that the idea though of a purely insurrectionary path to socialism is just a a fantasy, not really a, a good one. You know, um, like the disruptions and devastation caused by these things will will likely not be to our 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 benefit, and it'll be very hard to convince people that to, you know when people are in situations of of dislocation and chaos, they often want to go back to the old comforts, even if the old comforts were were oppressive because mm-hmm. because it's safer and more stable and familiar evils and i think we we need to you know understand that so yeah my vision is is a democratic road to um to socialism yeah 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 i mean i think we're on the same page there <laughs> i mean i guess like one, one of the things that we, or one of the reasons i ask is is that i was thinking about the role of the and i guess it's kind of actually not you it's one of the things one of the few things you don't talk about in the book actually um it, you know in terms of the history of the left is actually the, the weird history of the kind of the western european communist parties right so these were like uh big mass parties which existed alongside social down we've talked a bit about mm-hmm. the italian situation um, already stay, but they, they existed alongside these 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 other kind of you know centre left parties, uh, and they're, they're, they're and they're to a greater or lesser extent autonomous from from the mm-hmm. USSR and whatever etc. Um, these are serious mass parties though; they're opposed to capitalism. And they're grappling with how to act in a state that has the democratic franchise, you know, that that is very different to absolutist Russia. That's undergoing in in both cases of France and Italy rapid technological change, um, and obviously there's that political question then so how do they act do they participate mm-hmm. how do they do with stuff like that also the body of theoretical work i suppose that's occasioned uh, as well like right. into like western marxism so is there you know and these are two different things instantly um but so is there is there is there a heritage there that we should be drawing there's from? definitely some euro communist intellectuals that should be um read um so i guess it just depends who and in what cases in some cases it was just essentially old Stalinist leaderships making a tactical maneuver to maintain electoral support. So let's say a lot of French Eurocommunism, you might be able to describe that way. In the Italian case, I think a lot of the corollary examples is actually the experience of second international social democracy, so what we discussed with the Germans. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the Italians were locked out of state power, so they couldn't join coalition governments. So instead, they had to build just in civil society. So they created this alternative culture um, that you were saying, kind of almost a parallel state within a state, uh, similar to the way the Germans did, because they were also locked out. So you might call Italian social, uh, Italian Eurocommunism basically a left social democracy, but in a condition where you're not wielding power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't really examine it in depth. There's definitely individual thinkers that are worth um, worth reading. I think the fundamental flaw with both Eurocommunism and kind of the Kotskyan like strategy of patience is that um, and Ernest Mandel, the Belgian, um, you know, uh, Trotsky has put it in similar terms. It was almost like they thought that capitalism was a fortress and you could just build trenches all around it mm. and slowly advance kind of closer and closer to the fortress until eventually you storm the fortress. Um, but not only are there counter- countervailing tendencies that, that cause conservatism, bureaucratization as you're on your way, moving trench to trench, but capitalism isn't a fortress at all and that it's a kind of a floating, moving, moving target. So that's why I think, even though I have this long-term kind of perspective, um, I think it's useful to incorporate thought from Luxembourg and others in which you're actually thinking about the way consciousness and other things occasionally moves in leaps and bounds, Mm -hmm. and you have to be ready to make decisive moves when opportunities arise. So for example, now's you know, this last several years in the UK has been a period where there's been a huge opening for the British left. And now's the time to put all your chips in to really, you know, be aggressive and try to get a labor led government and try to build an extra parliamentary left and try to do all these things. Whereas in the 90s, that was periods of slow, stable growth where we should have been building the infrastructure that would have better enabled us to take advantage of this opportunity. So we have to both be patient and be you know, consider it, but also be ready to kind of storm the mm-hmm. castle. So I guess I didn't discuss it because it'd be too hard for me to distinguish between who were the intellectuals that actually had influence over their parties and who were just mm-hmm. thinkers. Because sometimes there's 
the elevation of intellectuals and groups of intellectuals that coincided with a political moment, but didn't necessarily direct it. What's mm-hmm. interesting about Kotsky and these other people is that they were actually helping right to direct the right there and helping to direct it too. And in the case of Italian Eurocommunism, I guess I have to think more about what's distinct in it and what was just left social democracy in a different context mm-hmm. with a different language. But I certainly, I guess, would have been a left Eurocommunist in that condition. I, but it really led, it led absolutely nowhere yeah. very quickly. So <laughs> I think maybe that's something for for the next book. You know, my, my edition in the UK <laughs> is published by, by Verso Books, but in the US it was Basic Books, which is kind of a more mainstream or a, a mainstream publisher. So I think this Italian communism and other stuff might be useful for like a second book, uh-huh. you know, deep cut, you know, for the for the fans, <laughs> not for the not uh, a pop, expanded, yeah, not expanded a pop album, book. Yeah. expanded album. Um, let's talk about it today. Um, the obviously there are exciting things happening in the United States and there are exciting things happening here. It, the kind of electoral and institutional turn, in some ways, sort of felt like it came out of nowhere in the United States, right? Like. Um, you know, I saw the Occupy stuff happening and obviously there was stuff here. Um, but the, the, the turn towards the DSA, and I think, like, if you asked me five years ago about the DSA, I'd say, oh, well, it's a kind of, it's an eccentric old American socialist outfit with, like, he's kind of like, uh, you know, very, you know, normal kind of left politics, but, you know, exists really as a pressure group in a kind of cartel party system. It seems to have really profoundly changed. And, like, obviously Jacobin has played a huge role in that. Um, what's going on with it? And can it change the Democrats? Well, I guess there's two parts to the question. What, what's been the main instigating force uh, behind this change? Well, obviously part of it's written Occupy. Before that, the Wisconsin Uprising, Black Lives Matter, and all these other, the return of politics in a very public, invisible way. And also the fact that Trump has shattered a lot of old uh, norms and really broken open the U.S. Uh, political spectrum um, in, in, you know, like both terrifying and interesting, you know, ways. Um, you know, terrifying for its effect on working people. Interesting just because it's really shattered a lot of the prevailing kind of center-right consensus in the U.S. by opening up space for both the far right and now the far the far left. But Bernie Sanders' campaign was really the most significant thing, and that was just a fluke or an accident of history. People were looking for an alternative for Hillary Clinton. The person who was there to present an alternative to Hillary Clinton was someone who was politicized in the socialist movement in the United States in the 1960s, who, who uses old left language, who... You know, I once had a conversation with him that um, in which, you know, he knows who Tony Benn is. You know what I mean? Like that, <laughs> that kind of like that's that's just an yeah. unusual, like an unusual thing in the United States. In the UK, it's not that unusual. You know, you even have like centrist MPs that had, you know, oh, you know, they were secretly in, you know, uh, in militant for like a week or two in the 80s. You know, and uh, like that, that kind of stuff. Like yeah, you, yeah, you hear yeah, stories yeah. like that. You might even have some Tory MPs with the same stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, young Communist League yeah. produced like most of New Labour. yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, so in the U.S., so it's an extreme abnormality. But one thing is, Sanders just has shut up and played the hits. He speaks in a language that's clear. He used a more limited vocabulary than Donald Trump. And at our best, American leftists, I think, have a clarity, clarity and concision that um, that parts of the far left, both in the U.S. and U.K. and elsewhere, don't have, but also even the center left. So if you talk to Hillary Clinton about banks, she'll bring up things like she, during the campaign, she said something about, you know, well, yeah, we need to regulate banks, but that won't end racism and sexism. <laughs> you know, like just kind of like this gobbledygook of like actually the greatest weapon, the best thing the academic left has ever did was just corrupt the minds of our center left to the point that they just are mixing in their conservative, like terrible economic policies uh, with like rhetoric about access and marginality. And it's all just in this confusing stew. Whereas Bernie comes in with his like, old repetition of mantras um but you know using accessible language talking about millionaires and billionaires are taking stuff away from you you know we need to organize against them you know i think everybody deserves health care that's why i'm running for president like common sense Mm -hmm. things that are just appealing to people but also speaking to their their anger so i think that's created an actual kind of mass movement around Sanders. And now there's this rhetoric, there's this lexicon and Sanders self-describes as a democratic socialist. So that's, 
that's made that word less scary. And also the fact that the right keeps using it to describe even the most mild uh, centrist Democrats, you know, makes it less scary, too. DSA is still a fringe phenomenon. When I joined, I had 5,000 members. I'm 29 now. I, I joined DSA when I was 17. Now it has 60,000 members. So it obviously has grown a lot. But we're in a country of 330 million people. Um, we are definitely exerting, we're punching above our weight, we're exerting a lot of influence, but to some extent, it often feels like a media event, like we are well positioned to shape a broader media apparatus, and particularly our print media in the US is generally center to even center left, um, at least in the US spectrum, and, you know, we don't have the chief editors at these, these papers, but like, if there's going to be a piece about Jacobin or a review of my book, I'll often get it sent to me by like a copy editor at one of these mm-hmm, publications, mm-hmm. you know, even someone I don't know, yeah, you know, yeah, some, yeah. Like, you know, we're, we have a bunch of lefties and socialists in in certain different positions. And there's a lot of people who are social media savvy. So we get good media coverage, which is helping to inflate it. What we have to do is actually make it more substantially rooted in a working class movement. And there's been glimmers of that. The West Virginia strike wave wouldn't have happened without Jacobin. Oh, sorry, without DSA. And to some extent, Jacobin, like some of these teachers, uh, they were recruited by, um, by, uh, they, you know, they, they were drawn to the left and were first connected by the Bernie Sanders campaign. A couple of them were in Jacobin reading groups in West Virginia. A bunch of them later joined DSA. This formed like the network and the infrastructure of connecting organizers. And then these organizers had to do the hard work convincing their friends and peers, many of whom were even Trump voters, to be a part of this anti-austerity you know, struggle. So the left, that's the left at its best, kind of creating a web and infrastructure, connecting people like and actually being rooted in working class struggles. There's a lot of great um, DSAers uh, in Brooklyn and DC and elsewhere that are involved in tenant unions. So right now DSA is disproportionately white, disproportionately middle class, but either they can sit around and talk about how white and, and you know, middle class they are, have struggle sessions or, or whatever, whatever else, um, or they could actually engage in struggles where they can to slowly build a base. What I'm afraid of is that as we take these formerly not very politicized people or, or former former liberals and bring them to the far left, that they'll lose what was good in their language and they'll adopt more of the jargon and the zeal of the new convert and they'll become less uh, normal. I don't mean normal in the sense of, you know, whatever um, mainstream conventions of normality are. I just mean normal as in like they their concerns should be the concerns of most people, which mm. is for dignity, for respect, for time, not not the kind of parsing out yeah. uh, the different you know sectarian dilemmas I, of the past ten years. It's, you know? it's, it's, it's just it's very striking in your book, certainly in the first chapter, where you talk about you know the way in which people are motivated by their experiences in the workplace. Uh, and the way it, it connects to a broader kind of political questions. And then I think recurrently throughout the book, you, you do articulate, you know, what is effectively socialism as a moral claim. This is something that the various US politicians, I think, do very, very, very well. Um, AOC is the obvious example, other than Bernie, um, to, to articulate a kind of moral critique of capitalism. It's something the left has been hesitant to do in the past. Um, because it's seen moralism as dangerous, I think, rightly, but actually has lost, I think, something that was there. And, you know, in something that someone like William Morris, who was capable mm-hmm. of, like, saying, like, actually, there's some, there is something bad about, um, about the, the brute fa- fact of exploitation. There's something bad about it. Yeah, and we, leftist politics, scientific socialist politics is not possible without a moral base, because we say that exploitation and hierarchy is wrong, but those aren't objective facts. I mean, in other words, we have to say that the wage labor condition is rooted in exploitation hierarchy. We have to explain why exploitation hierarchy is wrong. We have to come to that conclusion. You could be a, uh, a conservative, someone on the far right even, and you could think that slavery is bad. It's a form of exploitation that's unacceptable. But as a leftist, you know, leftist, we think that wage labor is a form of exploitation that's unacceptable. And where you draw the line and why one's acceptable and why is one's unacceptable or whatever, you know, whatever else, if you're if you're a mainstream person, you know, that th- those are all moral decisions. Mm-hmm. And from that bedrock, uh, we build our, our politics. That's why, you know, I'm a socialist. I will be a socialist until the day I die. I can't say that I'll be a Marxist until the day I die because that would be anti you know, Marxist, right? Because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, a framework, mm-hmm. it's a way of viewing the world. It gives us a few pertinent facts about about things that we think is are important in life, about like um, 
how um, production changes, about how the workplace is structured, about why the spoils of, of, so, of social wealth go to go to just a few and not not the not the many. I mean, these are things that Marxism can give us insights on. It can't give us insights on everything, and often Marxism at its worst has been trying to give us insights on genetics or agriculture, like in the Soviet Union, yeah. or today with like pop culture. No, I don't need Karl Marx to understand The Simpsons. Like maybe somebody trying to get like a degree and trying to make some money, like you know, they need that. That's fine, but like let's just acknowledge that for what it is. Um, I think I think so. Let's talk about one of those things and the things that the, the Marxist says. I think sometimes from the stuff I see that comes out of the U.S. Obviously, I don't have like direct access to it, but I see these things online sometimes. I think Jacobin in particular gets a reputation. I think an unfair reputation of being kind of class first in a sort of chauvinist or unreflexive way, right? And you're very clear in the book that you see class analysis as like the fundamentally correct way of understanding social and political structure, and therefore is the basis for a theory of political agency, mm-hmm. right? So, and and I think it's pretty refreshing actually to see argued socialists should think of themselves as part of the class. Uh, and that they should therefore be thinking about entering workplaces where socialist ag- organization and agitation will be effective. Now, it, like in the course of the, the 20th century and onwards, there have been movements that have insisted, I think, either that like an intensely productivist conception of, of class can result in a kind of stunted theory of political agency, um, or that our concepts of, of class need to take into account the way in which race and gender aren't politically separate, actually, that in, in you know, especially in the US, I think, um, but, but, but here as well, certainly, that they're part of class formation. Are, are these kind of bodies of thought useful to the sort of movement that you're speaking to? Well, I think any, any thought right or wrong is, 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 is useful, right, in that it gives us... So, so one thing, let's say, about, about Jacobin or even, let's say, this book or my, my thought that I think can leave us open to criticism is just the fact that we lay out what we think with a degree of clarity and, and precision. So I'm not a huge fan of all of the work, let's say, of, um, of uh, G.A. Cohen. But one reason why the analytic tradition produced a great body of work, but also produced lots of criticism of their body of work is because you can actually understand their points in the kind of agonizing detail. It's like very point, <laughs> counterpoint, you know, preposition. Um, and I think that should be the, the, the goal, right? To present ideas clearly and have debates and, and whatnot. When it comes to these issues of identity, I think we don't really need to excessively theorize them. Like, I don't think critical race theory lends anything useful or intersectionality as a theory lends anything useful um, to Marxism, but we need to be tactically flexible. So in other words, um, if we have a conception that says movements against oppression matter because we are against oppression and that's at the core of being a socialist, therefore we need to facilitate people being able to organize and talk about the particular oppressions that they face within socialist spaces and within a broader working class movement. Um, I don't think I need a theory for that, right? When we're at meetings, we need to make sure there's progressive stack because the way people are socialized in society today means that often it's it's white men, particularly, or just men in general, that feel the confidence to speak, whereas just as qualified or, or more eloquent qualified women will, will not speak or will defer or will maybe need progressive stack or need some sort of like rotation of leadership positions to actually go step up and, and play a leadership role in, in, in groups. So all these things are are obvious to me, but they're not theoretical matters. They're just a matter of like common sense, like, um, you know, don't don't be uh, don't be hateful or offensive, create environments where people feel welcome, where they could contribute and where they could reach their, their potential. You know, all these things are, are incredibly important. I think they've just been excessively academicized into, into theories. And often there's a difference between, like, I do believe in the primacy of, of class in terms of, um, uh, if you're thinking, but not because it's this abstract, like I'm rooting for the class team and all these other people rooting for the for the race, you know, team or whatever, uh, whatever else. Um, but it's as simple as if you're serious about, let's say, anti-racism, you have to be talking about distributing power, wealth, resources from the uh, people who hold power, wealth and resources to the most marginalized groups. And if you're talking about that anti-racism beyond just representation without having a few more black and brown 
faces and high places, then we have to um, be talking about redistribution of wealth and we have to be talking about, therefore, class, right? So we focus on class in order to properly assemble the coalitions and build the programs and reforms that will actually make a dent into, into racism. And we don't think that racism is primarily a matter of interpersonal hostility or bigotry. So, you know, I'm sure if you're in um, London today as opposed to London um, 15, 20 years ago, it's a lot better place to be black, brown, gay. You know, it's a much better, it's a better place at an interpersonal level. But at the same time, if there's austerity cuts and um, shelters that that primarily cater to LGBT youth and at-risk youth are being cut, then is it, you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. In, in other words, like, it, it seems to me that we're living in societies where interpersonal hostility is on the decline. And that's where the left or like the liberal left has been winning. Mm-hmm. And we don't, like, say dismiss those. We actually think those are good things. But in order to make them more substantive and actually impact the lives of working class people, yeah. we need to connect it to a broader program. Class is that common glue. Mm-hmm. And class also means that we're creating a, a baseline of a workers' movement in which we could bring in struggles against oppression. There'll be other struggles against oppression that we maybe are going to be less concerned about, right? There might be the discrimination at the highest level of like CEO pay or whatnot. And we're not for that, but it, but it might be that, that we focus our, our energy on, on, you know, kind of the, the day-to-day discrimination that working class women, you know, uh, face or their lack of, of adequate uh, childcare and other things that are yeah. just radically influencing their, their, uh, their lives. So, yeah. Yeah. The key, to, the key is to express in a way that doesn't seem, you know, dismissive, mm-hmm. but um, also doesn't seem abstract. So even saying, you know, we, you know, we believe in the primacy of class in the traditional kind of orthodox Marxist way, like, just seems like an abstract and dismissive way. Whereas if it's actually coming across in political practice, you could be in an anti-racist space and you could tell people, well, we're going to focus on this living wage campaign but obviously, we're going to have X, Y, Z measures, so it's going to be inclusive. We're going to do certain outreach and, and so on uh, in this living wage campaign. That would make perfect sense to people. No one's going to be like, well, you're not quoting X, Y, Z. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think what you hit on there is that, is that the problem is, the, is how uh, absent those, those spaces are in those kind of campaigns and those, those kind of simple, uh, like, organizational bases, right? So one of the, the kind of things that's really visible i think in in the way you're thinking in the last in that in that last kind of manifesto like chapter is 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 about the division between above and below right and you know the question of you know socialism from above and socialism below this is like a long argument in socialist history uh, and it's a question to which like i think we all return again and again right like and anyone who's honest about the way in which movements actually operate um you know and because the, the obvious solution it's a solution that, that, that i'm sure you agree with me is like oh you need both sure you need people in the institutions you need people on the streets as well and, you know, obviously at, at times it seems when we're thinking about policy in here, uh, you, you know, you're thinking about political professionals and then you're thinking about, you know, what it means to be in the workplace. And what is, you know, and thus you have like non-reformist reforms that might bridge the two things together. Um, you're also aware, I think, that these things, for whatever reason, haven't grown up together. Like there's, I can't think of a moment in the last decade where you have an effective street movement and like an effective like left wing political operation. There's, they seem to have been one or the other. And I worry and if there's an interesting sentence in your, your chapter where you, where you worry a little bit about an overcorrection towards the institutional. Um, so, so why is it that these two feel so difficult to keep together? Uh, is there a plausible way of developing both at once? Well, I think the key is having a mass party that does both, right? It's the same institution, the same organization, but this party has to have a root, and the root has to be the place where working-class people have the most social weight, which is partially in our in our workplaces. Um, so I think there's been a mobilizational tendency on, on the left, where you just, in the 80s and 90s, especially the European left, it's been kind of these social movement mobilizations, and the social movement so vaguely defined, and often it means kind of a cross-class. People concerned about racism 
will rally one week and people concerned about the environment one week. And the point of a political party is to take a kind of movement of movements umbrella approach. And I think you're going to, and I think that's not the basis on which you could actually build a sustainable political coalition. You might be able to squeak by and win an election, but you won't build the social forces to actually carry out a program. So if, if labor goes through with the kind of turn towards a second referendum and, and whatnot, then you'll have the same sort of sort of thing where you might win over some, um, I think it'll be counterproductive on, on both the practical and long-term strategy, but might win over some Lib Dem and Green voters enough to kind of squeak by with a coalition, but you still don't have the, the roots to actually create the pressure um, that comes with withholding, you know, your labor power and whatnot that can actually force concessions from from capital. And that's one of the dilemmas of our of our era where it looks like we're going to, you know, win power but not win um sorry, win office but not win power. And I guess there's this broader question that you were getting at, which is the relationship between the grassroots and technical expertise. Hmm. And I think that's largely unresolved, but we definitely need technical expertise. Um but the way that these dilemmas are traditionally resolved in any organization is just like effective representative democracy. Like we don't need, if we have a future mass party and this mass party is producing a network of like 50 podcasts, like maybe a lot of the people involved with Navarra should be coordinating that activity. Um, their position shouldn't be an unelected, permanent, bureaucratic position. It should be elected. But once you're elected, you should have two years to be able to figure out what, you know, whatever the hell, you know, you're doing. And I think that's, I sound so simple, but I think that's how we resolve a lot of these dilemmas mm -hmm. in unions and other groups, like figuring out ways to create representation, but then how do you prevent bureaucracy from forming? Maybe you do term limits, maybe there's recall, maybe these people are only paid the average working person's wages, which I think is a standard that should still be enforced. Mm -hmm. So every single MP in a party should at most get 1.5 times the average working person waging. You know, they're commuting a lot. They're in London, an expensive, you know, place. So maybe a little bit more than average, but, but the rest should be donated to the party. I mean, these are the norms that are still common in the small grouplets of the, the mm -hmm. far left in some, in some countries. Um, well, even like when I went to Spain, I um, was in Spain for the summer school of the anti-capitalistas, a group broadly out of the Trotskyist tradition, though, kind of like, post trust Trotsky in some ways um, that forms the left wing of, of Podemos. You know, so I land, I go to the summer summer school thing. You know, my Spanish is pretty terrible, so I could engage in, like, casual conversations, not political conversations, really. So, you know, I'm in the kitchen just watching up, you know, uh, helping out in the kitchen because I figured that's what a good guest should do. No one's very impressed. I was trying to, you know, <laughs> impress people. No one was impressed by this action. It turns out the person I was in the kitchen, you know, washing dishes with was Miguel Urban, who's a, <laughs> is an MEP yeah. for, for Podemos. Because... Yeah, it's not a big, it's just part of the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I think um, as you get into larger and larger parties, especially the Labour Party, which has always been particularly just a, just an awful party. Like, <laughs> I think one reason why, why many people in Britain are not interested in learning about Swedish social democracy or these other efforts is because they think that social democracy is laborism, mm -hmm. where this is the right wing fringe in many, you know, historically of social democracy. Now the tides have turned, and you actually, I think, have the most coherent and decent left leadership of a major party in, in the world, really. Um, but it still is going to take a long time to kind of rebuild and reshape and reform the culture. And I dodged your question about the Democrats, or you mentioned before, because I don't think the Democratic Party can or should be taken over. What I do think is, because of the peculiarity of the U.S. electoral system, we often need to run on democratic ballot lines, but as open socialists. Mm -hmm. And no one has ever been expelled or disciplined from either party. I could join the Republican Party tomorrow, and there's zero chance, literally zero, that I could be expelled from the Republican Party. The Republican Party doesn't even hold its own elections. The elections are held by the state. Same with the Democratic Party. They're more like ballot lines than real mem mass membership mm -hmm. parties. And this, you know, I explained this in the book, yeah. I think, yeah, a little yeah, yeah. bit. And... I was switching, my examples are about two-thirds Sanders in the U.S., and maybe one-third in the, the last bit, U.K., so mm -hmm, I tried mm -hmm. to write for both audiences, but when I was writing that passage, it was more meant for the U.K. audience, yeah, so if you want a quick yeah. description, you know, just go to a library and flip to that one page, and, you know, you could, you could get it. <laughs> my last question for you, simple one, difficult one, can we win? 
It depends what you mean by, by winning. I think we can occupy power right away. I think we can prevent the far right and the populist right from, from being in power. I think we could make things less harmful for working class people. I think we might be able to win small reforms. Can we win socialism? I think it's going to be a long struggle. But we have to remember that socialism, the struggle for a better world, the struggle against oppression and exploitation is rooted in something objective. People know when they're being treated poorly and they know they deserve better. The role of the left is not to impart a good consciousness to people who have false consciousness. The goal of the left is to make it easier for people to fight back and fight for their own interests and also to make it easier to create bonds of solidarity. So in other words, our message has to be to people that if you're a um, you know native-born, um, former industrial worker in England, that our program is going to be better for you, and it's going to be better for your, for your black or brown neighbor. And they might have a little bit more to gain than you, but you still have something to gain. And this is, you know, we fight against the narrative of scarcity, and we make it possible for people to fight back at their own collective interest. And, you know, this... You can't have politics without a subject. And I think that's that's one of the dilemmas of the young the young left, whereas we are all coming to politics out of a sense of individual moral conviction. And that's good to create the building blocks of a left, but you can't have a left until you're recruiting people not in ones and twos, but in masses on the basis of their position in the economy, on the basis of, of their economic interests, on the basis of, 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 of that. And you need to create a culture and a, and a sense of shared destiny. And Corbynism at its best, uh, you know, the lead up to the 2017 elections in the early days, it's been able to combine the hard left kind of base, the layer of, of you know, younger activists actually knocking on doors with the actual social base of people who identified as working class people and who were committed to a program that was just going to improve their lives. And we need to constantly go back to that that vision of politics and not get caught up in kind of these, this is Ronan Burtonshaw Tribune's, um, you know, publisher wrote and editor um, wrote in a uh, in a piece, you know, the the other day, uh, not have just the battle fought at the level of culture, engage in culture wars, but remember that there is something objective to this this politics. And as long as there's capitalism, there's going to be a resistance to it. That's all we have time for today. The Socialist Manifesto is out now, and I commend it to listeners. It's well worth thinking with. My thanks to Baskar for joining me. And this has been Navara FM. I have been James Butler and we'll be back at the same time in the same place next week. Bye-bye.